It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well. How are you today, Tim? You know, Lance, I am doing great, especially because we have one of our friends on, Laura Rist. She's uh, so knowledgeable on the case of Trenny Lynn Gibson's disappearance. Yes, every time Laura comes on, it's so fascinating to hear how she's put together all of her work and just the dedication that she's shown in Trenny's case. Uh, She's been looking at Trenny's case for about 17 years now, I think. The day she got internet up in uh, her neck of the woods in Canada, she started looking into Trenny's case. Uh, You can see all of her research and her work at CanadianGirl77.com, and that girl is spelled with a U, so G-U- rl canadian girl 77.com and uh, trenny has been missing since october 8th of 1976 she went missing from the great smoky mountains national park in tennessee she was one of 38 students on a horticulture field trip 
from Bearden High School in Knoxville, Tennessee. And we get into it a little bit, how those students, some of those students who were on the field trip, uh, some of them who weren't on the field trip, we get into Laura's interactions with uh, some of those students and how she says when Trenny's case comes up or when there's some sort of natural disaster or some event that happens at the uh, Great Smoky Mountains in, in that area, how some of those students get nervous, which starts to become this creepy, uh, creepy story. Yeah, so this is episode four of our coverage on Trenny Gibson and Laura was on episode two and three with us. And this is actually a two-parter, uh, two-part interview. So we are going to have a fifth episode that airs next week. And before we play this interview, I just want to play a couple of clips from the previous episodes where Laura talks about a couple of the uh, more suspicious people. To your point, Lance, you're talking about some shady people, a shady group of people. We got to let you know about one of the shadiest his name is Simpson. Right. Robert Simpson was a good friend of Trenny's brother. Trenny and her brother had a really good relationship. They were like best friends. And Trenny's brother had assigned Robert Simpson the task of looking after Trenny the day of the field trip. And he was with Trenny on the trail when she went missing. And yeah, he is a very uh, strong person of interest. Trenny was walking with Simpson that morning. Now, Simpson was a good friend of uh, Trenny's older brother, Bob. And Trenny knew Simpson well, of course, and, and uh, felt, uh, felt fairly comfortable and, and safe with him. So that morning, uh, Simpson and Trenny, they were hiking to Andrews Bald, which was their assignment. They ate their lunch somewhere along the way, and they got to Andrews Bald without incident. Even though Simpson was tasked with watching Trenny uh, for, the, for the day, a tranny seems to want to go back to the bus and Simpson wants to stay behind and hang out for a while. So they part company at this point. Simpson stays behind on Andrew's bald and tranny starts walking back down towards the bus. She was hiking a little bit faster than some of the other students who are kind of just strolling along, enjoying their day out of school. And Trenny would kind of um, catch up to a group and fall in step with them, maybe speak to them a little bit. And then uh, she'd speed up and uh, catch up to another group and, and so on. The last couple of groups that saw Trenny said that she wasn't acting strangely or anything, just she wanted to, wanted to leave. So they sat down and they watched and the trail kind of had a bend in it. So it was a little bit hard to see. But one of the girls said she sort of leaned over and she saw Trenny stop on the trail and then kind of crouch down for a moment and look off to the right. And then she appeared to step off the trail then to the right. And this girl thought that was a bit odd, but she thought maybe Trenny had to relieve herself. And then when the uh, group stood up and started walking again, she said she sort of paused at the approximate place where Trenny had stepped off the trail. There was nowhere to go. There was no side trail. And she said she even got off and kind of took a step or two and called Trenny's name, but there was no answer. So thinking that Trenny had just, you know, stepped off quickly and they missed seeing her or she had got, gotten back on the trail at another spot, they just figured she'd be at the bus and they just continued on their merry way. Um, it was at the bus then when they were doing roll that they realized the Trenny didn't come back. 
And then there's Kelvin Bowman, who's also very suspicious. He and Trenny were friends uh, before the break-in. Um, there was there didn't seem to be any animosity between them or or anything. And the break-in happened on Saturday, October eleventh, nineteen seventy-five. So nearly a year to the day that Trenny vanished. Pope Gibson was alone with Trenny, uh, Tina, and Miracle uh, one night. Her husband was away on business, and Bob Gibson, Trenny's older brother, he wasn't home either. So late at night, Hope Gibson was awakened because she heard somebody calling and carrying on outside, and they were calling for Bob. And she looked outside the window to see Calvin Bowman, who was very, very drunk, outside on the lawn. And she kind of just was keeping an eye out because Hope was the one home, and it was up to her to protect her, her household. Uh, Calvin Bowman then kind of headed over for a planter box. And this planter box was outside Trenny's bedroom window. And he kind of hunkered down by this, this planter box. So Hope got concerned when she saw that. And she went and got her pistol out and went into the bathroom. And when Calvin stuck out his foot from this planter box, uh, Hope shot him in it. Calvin Bowman had broken Trenny's window, and he was trying to drag Trenny out through her broken bedroom window. Calvin gained access to Trenny's bedroom. Now, this is after he's been, he's been shot, and gets inside Trenny's room. Trenny goes running down the hall to find her mother. Hope was coming down the stairs because she said whoever was breaking in her house, they weren't going to leave it alive, basically. And Calvin came out of Trenny's room and he had his hands raised, don't shoot, don't shoot, and he was asking for mercy. And Hope said she just sort of uh, hesitated for a moment and she realized how drunk he was and she took into account that, you know, he was some mother's son. So she decided not to, uh, not to pursue the, um, the shooting angle any, any further. And uh, when Calvin went to court, he was in court, of course, on crutches because he'd taken a bullet to his foot. He made remarks that when he was going to be back, he was going to be back, and he was going to harm Trenny and or the Gibsons when, when he got out. You know, this wasn't going to be the, the last, of, uh, last of Calvin Bowman by any means kind of thing. And anyone with information in Trenny Gibson's disappearance, please call the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation at 615-744-4000. And if anybody knows any of the students that were on that trip that day, or if you are one of the students, we'd be interested in talking to you as well. And feel free to go to our website, crawlspace-media.com, and shoot us a message. And on this date, June 25th, 1982, Ramon Yaramillo Vasquez was 27 years old when he vanished from Alice, Texas. Ramon was 5 foot 9 inches, 170 pounds. He was a Hispanic man with brown hair, blue eyes, and a scar on his chin. He also had a tattoo on his bicep of a rose with a ribbon below it. And the names Gracie, Sandra, and Ramon, which are his wife and daughter. Anyone with info should contact the Jim Wells County Sheriff's Office at 361-668-0341. Or you can send Laura a message as well, or again, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And this segment is brought to us by Private Investigations for the Missing. Check them out at investigationsforthemissing.org, and all their social pages are linked in our show notes. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening.
Welcome back, Laura Rist. Laura, how are you today? Doing well, thank you. How are you? We can't complain. I've been looking forward to this interview for, uh, you know, since the last time we spoke. You always leave us on the edge of our seats with this, uh, with this research you've done in Trenny Gibson's disappearance. Well, you, you live like me, you live life on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, you sent us some really thought-provoking emails uh, over the course of the last few weeks. And one of them here was about uh, searches, and, and we're talking about uh, cadaver dogs, I think, was, was a question that, uh, that came up. Yes. And so you had uh, mentioned that they had a uh, the Gibson family had a hellish time with the National Park Service. They did, yes. Uh, most of the reason was in the initial search for Trenny, uh, Hope Gibson had two brothers that wanted to uh, come and assist in the search for for Trenny for their niece, and bring their own dogs as well. And they met with opposition from the uh, Park Service. The Park Service, long story short, didn't want them there. Because they were family, because they weren't trained searches, searchers, pardon me, uh, they, they didn't want them there. The Park Service didn't. But um, the Gibson uh, fa- family, rather, hopes to, to brothers, rather, they would not take no for an answer, and they insisted they did join the search, and they did search with their own dogs. I don't know exactly what breed of dogs they used. I believe they were hunting dogs, and they had the same result as the bloodhounds and the German shepherds did that were used by the dog handlers in the, uh, in the search for trend. Then uh, Mr. Gibson, he, he campaigned the park for a second search for Trenny. The first search ended at, at the first part of November in 1976, where they found no sign of Trenny, save for the, uh, what the, the dog um, teams had picked up. There was no scraps of clothing, nothing like that. The only evidence were those cigarette butts, that half can of beer, if that's related to the case, and Trenny's scent that was picked up by the search dogs. But Mr. Gibson campaigned the Park Service. He wanted another search conducted in the spring of 1977. And he met with a lot of opposition from the park personnel. They said another search would be basically a waste of money, a waste of people's time. They were concerned that people might get hurt. They used every reason that they could think of not to have one. Mr. Gibson was so frustrated with the park personnel. At one time, Mr. Gibson had worked for uh, Jimmy Carter, who eventually was was president of the United States. Mr. Gibson went to Jimmy Carter and asked him for help. And with Mr. Carter's intercedence, that's how they got a second search going. And the second search started on the 18th of April in 1977. They had to wait till the... Smokies were basically clear of snow, and it lasted till uh, early May of the same year. And again, they they found nothing. You mentioned Jimmy Carter helped out Mr. Gibson. Yes. Mr. Gibson knew Mr. Carter from, from before they had a history. Mr. Gibson had worked for Jimmy Carter at one time, and he went to him, and that's how, how the second search came about, because the Park Service wasn't going to budge. Mr. Gibson got his lawyer on it. His, li- his lawyer did have a little bit of, 
of influence in swaying the park to start another search. But it was basically Mr. Carter's involvement was was how they got that search going. That's pretty impressive. I don't, I don't think I've yes. ever heard a story where the president of the United States intervenes like that for a single missing person. I don't know what exactly Mr. Carter did, if he just wrote some letters or made a few phone calls, but Mr. Gibson was, was getting desperate, like he was just hitting his head against the wall. The Park Service just kept saying no. Then reluctantly, once Mr. Carter got involved, and to a lesser degree, Mr. Gibson's lawyer, the Park Service agreed to the second search. Then there was some back-and-forth banter between the Gibsons and the Park Service, between how many searchers the Park Service was going to put on the search because they said they didn't want a, a circus-type atmosphere or, or anything like that. But eventually it was agreed upon and another search was conducted for Trenny in April and May of 1977. But let's just put it this way. The Park Service didn't exactly make it easy for the Gibsons to get that search going. And was Mr. Gibson looked at as a suspect by some people at one point? Yes. He was not looked at favorably. And it, it's really a shame because I, I don't really understand what the public expected the Gibsons to do. Did they just expect them to take the fact that their daughter disappeared lying down? Did they not expect them to retaliate and, and do something? The Gibsons wanted Trenny back no matter what. Barring that, they, you know, they wanted answers. And they were willing to turn that park upside down, inside out, if that's what it was going to take. And they, if they had to knock Bearden high on its ear, they'd do that too. And when that all failed, then they sued the school, the principal, Mr. Dunlap, the school board, and the city of Knoxville. And some people just got put off by it or just plain didn't know what to think. And then with that, they started whispering about the Gibsons behind their back. Friends of the Gibsons started distancing themselves from them, almost as if they were bad news, or they didn't want this sort of thing to catch, or maybe they'd, they'd have some kind of bad luck. And then people gradually just started to avoid them. Now, that's really unfortunate. What did they do to, I guess redeem themselves or or didn't they most of them didn't yeah that sucks and then there was another incident after tranny disappeared um her little brother miracle miracle was five or six years old when tranny vanished in 1976 there was another incident in 1980 with miracle where he had his eye put out by a neighbor boy they were playing with a bow and arrow and Miracle had his, he lost his eye because of this incident. So the Gibsons were really upset. They went after this neighbor uh, family because of, of what happened. And then that put a bitter taste in people's mouth, mouths. They, they just were talking about the Gibsons, spreading rumors about them, saying, you know, that they're just crazy, they're money hungry, and, and all that kind of, of stuff that goes with it. So gradually they got more and more isolated, and then Mr. and Mrs. Gibson, they divorced in the early 80s. Is that a thing? I mean, I'm kind of deviating from topic a little bit. Is that a thing where kids will play with uh, bow and arrows back in the 70s? Oh, yes, that was very common. Toys in those days, they weren't like toys are now. 
We played with uh, chemistry sets. We played with, I had a candle making kit that actually used scalding hot melted wax. A famous incident, if you want to Google it, is um, this product. It was a toy. It was called uh, lawn darts. Oh, my God. I remember lawn darts. They were actual darts, like with a pointed tip on the end. And the company got sued and sued and sued because there were so many injuries because of this this product. You know, like we, we, we played with stuff like that. We didn't we didn't think much of it. Kids rode around in vehicles. There were no car seats. We rode in the back of pickup trucks. We ate lead paint. Somehow we survived. <laughs> yeah. We've been having some emails that are going back and forth about Trini's case. And I had asked you if you ever thought that her body would be found. And I don't remember if we actually asked you that during one of our official interviews. Uh, do you think that her body will be found someday? And what do you think it'll take to get to that point? I believe Trini, Trini's body may be found someday, but it's going to take somebody to crack among the people that that did her harm that day so somebody's going to have to talk whether it's the actual person that harmed her or somebody that's more indirectly related to what happened to her that day it could be an ex-spouse uh, a sibling that says hey you know i don't want to keep your secret anymore so i'm going to go talk to somebody about this and i'm going to tell somebody Hope Gibson often said that she, she hopes and prays that the person that did this or persons, the burden will become so heavy on their heart that they have to confess what they, what they have done. Barring that, I believe Trenny may be found potentially if there's a natural disaster to hit the park of some sort, because it is my belief that she is still in that park. Let's just put it this way, and as I said this in my email, there's a group of Bearden students that get mighty nervous anytime something happens in that park related to a natural disaster, such as a fire or an earthquake or a severe windstorm, and there's damage. I believe that's because Trenny is still there, and they're concerned about where she is, if that site is going to be disturbed or not. That's a really interesting observation that you have. And I'm wondering how you came about that. Do you track the natural disasters that might happen in the park? And do you? Yes, I track them. Or my associate in Tennessee that I told you about, Jim, he tracks them. And then how do you cross-reference that to the reaction of the students? I watch them. Oh, you're, you, get, you get better and better every time we talk. <laughs> yeah, I love it. There's no nice way to say it. I'm sorry. I watch them. And as a result of, yes, I watch them, they also watch me. Right. I believe I sent you that email. It was probably about a month ago now about that student that had posted about Trenny's father doing her in. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. Basically, I think that was posted because the, they wanted to see what I would post back if I would answer them if I would say anything about it like I said they they watch me too I'm, I'm not alone in this I'm I am being watched how does that make you feel I'm used to it it, it did bother me in the beginning I didn't know how exactly to take it how exactly to react to it I've just gotten used to it. That's all I all I can say. I've adapted to it. Do you think that they're listening to your episodes on this show? 
I, I think they, they do. Um, they do tune in and listen to it because I post links to the site that I have about Trenny. Uh, and and let's, so people that, that go to the site can see, you know, what's new. I also post um, links to uh, the Missing Maura Murray podcast on Web Sleuths as well. Awesome. All you have to do is Google Trenny's name and, and the site comes up. Um, so they do watch me. What was the first indication or, or an indication that made you believe they were watching you? After I started, well, most recently, after I started the site, when I started getting emails from some of them, the reason that I know that the emails are people that were classmates of trannies is several different ways. Sometimes it's what they say in the body of the email. They're things that nobody else is going to know. Whether or not they make references to Trenny, whether or not they make references to the Gibsons, that's how I, I tend to tell who these people are. The second way and more obvious way is just by tracking down their email address, especially if they send me an email with an email address that can send mail. There are a few of them that will make sure that they use an email address where they can't receive mail, they can only send it. But I, I, I have been known to track email addresses, and some of the information that I have trouble finding myself, I have someone that assists me, and they can find out for me who owns that email if I, if I can't. Do all of the uh, former students reside in the same area, or are they close, or have they spread out? They're spread out. Some of them are still in the same area, in the Knoxville area. Some have drifted here and there. I've spoken to students that live in Florida that um, were present on the field trip with Trenny. I've spoken to some that are in North or South Carolina. But for the most part, most of them reside in, the, in Tennessee or in the Knoxville area. All right. Interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned a uh, someone you work with, a friend, and um, you did. There was some comment made at a Bearden basketball game back in 1976. Something we were emailing about. Can you uh, can you set up the story a bit? I don't. I don't think we spoke about this on the podcast yet. That what that happened with with Jim. Jim is my contact in Tennessee. He lives in Kingsport. It's about 90 miles as the crow flies from Knoxville. And Jim went to school at Dobbins Bennett. And Dobbins Bennett is a rival of Bearden High. And Jim was at a basketball game in 1976 at, at Bearden. And he was kind of by himself. And he noticed a girl kind of standing alone. And he was a young man. And he went over to this girl and started chatting with her. And she was chatting with him. And they were getting along fairly well. And she asked him, where he was from, and he mentioned he was from Kingsport, and he went to Dobbins Bennett, and so on and so forth. And Jim, of course, had heard about Trenny's case when she went missing. He remembers reading it in the newspaper, and he heard it on the news at least once or, or twice, the television news. And then Jim's father worked at Eastman in Kingsport, Eastman Kodak, and his father would come home and talk about the case because he had co-workers that had sons and daughters at the University of Tennessee. And they were talking about this 
missing 16-year-old girl in the Smokies and so on and so forth. So Jim asked this girl at the basketball game, hey, you know, did uh, you ever find that girl that went missing, Trenny? Does anyone ever know what happened to her? And Jim said this girl turned and gave him the strangest look and said to him, she was dead 30 minutes after she went missing. She gave him a little half smile and then she turned and walked away from him. And he said that statement just shook him to the core, that and the, the little half smile that the girl gave him. And he's never forgotten that. And that's been nearly 44 years ago. So he doesn't know the, the girl's name? No, he didn't know the girl's name. But then Jim is the same fellow that went to, um, U- to uh, East Tennessee State University, which is in Johnson City, Tennessee. And Jim is a couple years uh, younger than Trenny. So when, when he attended university, he met a group of girls that had graduated from Bearden High that were his age, and they were in some of the same classes at uh, East Tennessee uh, State University. And once they started to get to know him and they realized, you know, he seems kind of trustworthy, they started talking about about Trenny and what they had heard when they attended Bearden. And Jim said one of the girls uh, was kind of quiet, sort of sort of uh, reserved. But once she got Jim's trust, she started telling him some things. And she was the girl that was told that Trenny is up on Mellinger Death Ridge. That place that I told you was named after Jasper Mellinger. He was a settler that died in a bear trap. Right. Jim said in those days, of course, all there was basically was the library. Like you could go back and look at the library through old newspaper articles and that sort of thing. But there was no internet in those days. He talked about it with his family, but really he could go nowhere with it. Aside from anybody local that had heard of Trenny and her story, there was really nothing he could do. So he said he never forgot Trenny, but it was something he just sort of filed away back in his, his mind until uh, eventually the internet came about. He and his wife got a home computer. His wife taught him how to use it. And then he went on there and started doing some research because he was curious to know if Trenny's case had ever been solved. Well, I think it would be really interesting to talk to that girl who said that to Jim? Yes. I'm wondering, is it how can you possibly figure out who that girl was? Possibly going back through Bearden alumni, the yearbooks. She attended Bearden. You'd have to go back through the same year. Basically, Jim would have to go back and hope to recognize her in one of the photos. If that was the girl that that told him that that day, but he said that shook him to the core. Jeez. The story alone is is very eerie. Yeah, well, and they told him not to speak of that? Those were the girls that he met when he was at East Tennessee State University. They were scared. There's no nice way to, to say it. They kept telling him that, you know, they could talk about it, but only like amongst the four of them. He could never tell anybody who told him that, who gave him this information, so on and so forth, because they were scared that there would be repercussions. The girl that was rather reserved, her name was Katie. 
And she was the most concerned that she was going to be harmed somehow if Jim ever blew the whistle on where he got this information. But Jim said he went home and he told his folks, you know, maybe we should tell the authorities or, or whatever. They did go down and speak to them, but it, you know, I don't think it ever did go anywhere from, from there. That is crazy. Okay, so this other individual, Katie, do you think that she was on the, on the bus or on the field trip as well? No, she was the same age as Jim, so she would have been a couple years younger than Trenny. This was all information that these girls had gleaned because they attended Bearden High, and people were talking about it. Oh, my God. We need to put a, uh, a call out to these people who attended Bearden High. Yes, that would be wonderful if they would get a hold of the proper authorities and come forward with what they know. Because when Jim started talking to me, I didn't really realize that there was a whole bunch of threats with regards to knowledge of what happened to Trenny. I knew about her, her family, her immediate family, and I knew that um, her sister Tina had been threatened when she started to uh, approach adulthood and start to do some sleuthing around on her own. But I didn't know that there were all these threats among the student body and it sort of trickled down through the years. I didn't know any of that till Jim came forward and told me. What are some of the threats that the family uh, suffered, especially her sister? Her sister was told to leave it alone or the same thing that's happened to you or happened to Trenny is going to happen to you. But what was going around school and in the general area was Trenny was a runaway. She was a wild child. Her folks were too strict. They made her do chores. They made her clean her room. They made her look after her little brother. She had enough of that crap and just decided to book off one day. And so she took off from a national park while on a field trip. They tried to paint the picture that Trenny was a wild child and would just pick up and leave. And that would be the end of it. But that's not the, the case at all. That theory that Trenny picked up and ran away on a national park during a field trip is just sheer juvenile ignorance. It's ridiculous. But that is the story that's held up for so many years because there was no evidence to the contrary. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. 
kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.